The little child stood tugging at his mother's skirt. Tears were streaming down his chubby cheeks. He was crying so hard he was virtually unable to speak. Words came out slowly, almost unintelligibly, but a mother's ears, you remember, understand sounds that no one else can fathom when they come from the lips of their children. Interestingly enough, what the little lad was saying was, Mommy, I love you, and I want to make you happy. Now, those are tough words for a parent to refuse. For most of us, they're words we didn't hear very often. But they were the tear-drenched sounds that came from this little lad. His mother looked down at him with loving but somewhat wounded eyes, and she answered, Yes, dear, I know you love me. Thank you. But if you want to make me happy, clean your room. I don't want to clean my room, the little lad replied. It's too dirty. The mother kept on washing dishes. The lad kept on crying. It seemed to be an impasse. I'll prove I love you, the boy screamed. And with that, he ran outside to wash his mother's car. Turned on the hose and proceeded to drench her new station wagon, which incidentally had the windows down. So the results were not exactly as expected. It took about two tense hours before the little boy finally got the picture. The picture was that it wasn't that his mother doubted his love. It was that his mother was not pleased until he did the one thing she asked him to do. That's what Jesus meant when he turned to us and said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Simply do what I ask you to do. So many of us who really love our Lord are caught up in a barrage of frantic activities and well-meaning endeavors trying to prove we love him. How sad that we don't just sit still long enough to find out what he has said pleases his heart and do it. The problem is, as the song says, we want to do it our way. We miss the point of obedience entirely. Today's study highlights that internal struggle and it demonstrates for us how Satan often keeps us busy doing really good things. So long as he can keep us from doing the things that please the heart of God the most. We're continuing our study of 1 Timothy. We've been turning the microscope of our hearts these past two weeks and next week as well toward the first eight verses of chapter 2. Listening to the Apostle Paul as he writes to young Timothy and instructs him on the basic priorities of the Christian life. He had preceded that instruction, as you may remember, in chapter 1 with a wealth of discouraging news. He said there are problems in the church, Tim, there are problems in the world, Tim, and there are problems in certain people's lives so desperate that they become shipwrecked and literally turned over to Satan for punishment. Not a very pretty picture. But chapter 2 began, you recall from last week's lesson, I trust, with Paul pulling back the curtain and beginning to reveal the solution to some of these difficult problems. And his advice, you'll remember, was first of all, pray. Before you attempt to right the wrongs, before you attempt to correct the offenders, before you attempt to attack the problems, before you even attempt to plan your offensive, stop, stand totally still, and pray. Before you panic, pray. Before you get depressed, pray. 
Before you are tempted to flee for higher ground rather than face what appears to be a no-win situation, pray. And then when you finish praying, pray. In fact, make prayer a way of life, Paul said. Make prayer become your life. And with that, he began a dissertation on the subject, a practical but theologically accurate explanation of when to pray and for whom to pray and why to pray and what happens when you do. In our last lesson, we looked at the first two elements of that. We looked at when to pray, and the answer was, first of all, before we do anything else, pray. It's to be our number one priority. And then Paul, you remember, gave us a copy of his prayer list. He told us for whom to pray. Pray for everyone. There were to be no limits on the scope of our prayer list. Everyone God brings across our paths, everyone God lays on our hearts is a heaven-sent divine assignment for us to pray for. That child up the street, that, that relative who rails against the gospel, that, that man in your office who seems so lonely, that couple you met in the hospital who are undergoing such trials, the, your only limit on who to pray for would be the limit God places on who he will save, and that's no one. There is no limit. He longs that all men might be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's what the passage said. So Paul went on, we are especially to pray, not only for all men, but to pray without ceasing for all those God has placed in authority over us. The president, the governor, the mayor, congressmen, senators, judges, pastors, elders, all of those who exercise by reason of their office, regardless of their qualifications, authority over us to pray for on a regular basis from now until he comes again. They are to be the constant object of our prayers. And Paul explained why, if you'll remember, this is so that we could live peaceable, quiet lives, that is, free from internal and external conflict, lives which demonstrate godliness and holiness, purity without, purity within. Today we continue our look at that passage on prayer, having seen the pleading and the priority, we look at the principles this morning and the purposes. First the principles and then God's purpose in prayer, the twofold purpose listed in this passage. And next week, Lord willing, we will look at the real purpose of life itself, as Paul explains in this passage. I'd like us to read together 1 Timothy chapter 2, I urge you then, first of all, that four things happen, requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all men, everyone, kings, those in authority in particular is the imp implication, that we may live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Why? Because this is good and pleases God who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, for there is one God, one mediator, between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all men, the testimony in its proper time. For this purpose, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, a teacher of the true faith of the Gentiles. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying, Paul concluded. So that's the passage. Paul has instructed us, first of all, to pray. But lest we misunderstand, lest we try to attach some kind of legalistic limits to the subject of prayer, or turn it into some kind of an emotional free-for-all, Paul defines prayer as he proceeds, and to do that, to help us understand the methods and the meaning, he picks up four Greek words, and he layers them, he lists them for us as the ingredients that make prayer prayer. 
the new international version calls those four words requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. Now those words do not say much in our vocabulary. They are very general and all too familiar and we miss the whole point quite often. Secondly, we want to define them as activities when in fact they are attitudes that result in activities, so we often miss the point. What I'm going to ask you to do with me this morning is to take each of those four words and try to determine what Paul was saying as he told us to pray this way for all men and especially for those in authority. The first Greek word is diasis. It's a, a word used some 19 times in the scripture. In the King James Version, it is translated supplication. In this passage, in the NIV, it is translated requests. Most commonly, it is defined as an entreaty on behalf of personal need. It isn't an exclusively religious word. It's a word used in Greek at that time of one person asking another person to meet a need. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, Paul picks up that word and he uses it twice in the same passage, both as attitude and activity. He told us to take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication, diasis, in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And then in that famous passage in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Paul says, Be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. There's your word again. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. So all three of these passages then basically point out two basic truths, which I think are overlooked in most people's minds when they think about prayer. Truth number one is this, the emphasis in the passage is not on asking for yourself. It isn't on praying for me. In the Ephesians passage, we are to be praying always with supplication, that is praying for needs for all the saints. The verb was to pray, the method was supplication, the object was all men. In our passage in 1 Timothy, we urge you, first of all, Paul said that supplications or requests be made for all men. The emphasis is on bringing the needs of others to God. Paul seldom prayed for his own needs. He often asked others to do so. So there is a pattern you can take into consideration. So often, Paul would pray for other people's needs while he communicated his needs for them to pray for him. That's how the body works. So number one, the emphasis was not on praying for their own needs. The word supplication doesn't mean have a want list and take it to God and say, gimme. The issue here was bringing the needs of others, lifting them up to the throne of grace. So that's issue number one. The second issue is that Paul didn't pray, at least that I can find, that Aristotle would get another job or that Hezekikio would find a new wheel for his chariot or that Anthony would get that raise at the tent factory, or that Demetrius would win the 100-yard dash in the Olympics. Paul's prayers were for character, almost exclusively. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 is an excellent example. He said, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. 
that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may get it straight, become discerning, that you may be sincere, that is, pure in your motives, without offense, that is, pure before others, till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's how Paul prayed for other people. And even as he prayed, asked them to pray for himself, his purpose was always for the glory of God, not for the changing of circumstances. In fact, the next verse in this Philippians passage says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me here in prison have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. This is neat. I'm in jail. Not the way we would ask someone to pray for us. We would say, gather the troops together and pray that we'll be released. But the problem is we have misconstrued the basic purpose of prayer. Prayer is not intended to help God see things from our perspective. Prayer is intended to help us see things from God's perspective. God's goals are spiritual. The development of character, Christ in us. And that thing you may be praying that God would remove from Mary's life may be the very thing God put there to help Mary grow. That's what God is after. And for us to be after anything less is not really prayer. That's why John said in 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence that you can have in him, that if we ask anything, if we make supplication for anything according to his will, he hears us. What's it mean in accordance with his will? Well, it may or may not be in accordance with his will that he get that job or buy that car or receive that money or get that promotion or move to that city. We don't know. But it is not his will that any should perish. We know that. It is his will that all come to a knowledge of truth. Paul just told us that. It is his will that we make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all things. It is his will that we be conformed to the image of his Son. Those are things we can pray for with confidence. Those are the will of God. And we can pray for all men, especially those in authority over us, making requests always for them to be what God wants them to be doesn't mean we never pray for circumstances to be removed. Jesus in the garden prayed, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, thy will be done. But remember, his request was that the will of God be done. His reaction was, Lord, is there any other way? If not, this is it. Even in that prayer, Jesus was really not praying for himself, but for us. And if you really want a pattern for prayer, read John 17 over and over and over. And you will see this pattern emerge every time Jesus prayed and every time Paul prayed. And it's this. He prayed for our welfare on God's terms. Our welfare on God's terms. He was making supplications on our behalf. In fact, he prayed that the Father would keep us from the evil one, but not take us out of the world. In other words, Father, don't take the pressures from them. Just keep Satan from capitalizing on those pressures. Don't let Satan take that which you allow for their growth, Father, and destroy them with it. So his prayer was that as we go through the very things we want to avoid, Satan would have no liberties. That's how he prayed. So principle number one is pray always for all men, especially those in authority, by bringing their spiritual needs before the Father, asking him to meet those needs in whatever way would bring him most glory. It's a command to pray for others, not ourselves, primarily. And it's a command to pray for their spiritual well-being, not their circumstances, primarily. And this is so contrary to what's being taught today as the prayer of faith. We're being told that prayer is a tactic by which we get God in a corner and force him to, quote, bless us. 
often by asking him to take from us the very pressures through which he changes us. It's a gospel that sells because it's what man wants to hear, but it's not what glorifies God and equips the saints. So Paul says, first of all, make requests for all men. And that's what that word request then really means. The second word in Paul's primer on prayer is the word prosuke, and it's a word with a more limited context, but an even deeper meaning. It's translated in your Bible just prayers, make prayers. But that's really a very vague explanation of that word. Deasis was used of petitioning God or man. This word is used just of petitioning God. In fact, it literally means to come to a proper place in the presence of God. That's what it means. It signifies an attitude more than it does an act. And the attitude is one of deep humility at the feet of awesome power. It means, beloved, that you don't just toss prayers at God like you would basketballs through a hoop. It's the undeniable realization that you now are in the presence of a holy God for the purpose of drawing on his grace. You don't deserve to be there. But because the king purchased you back from the slave market of sin and personally asked you into his inner chambers to have fellowship, you go. You go joyfully, but you go carefully. You go boldly, but you go humbly. You say, but I'm to pray without ceasing. Yes, that's true. That means I pray as I drive. That's true. But beloved, to be praying as you drive, as you work, as you rest, doesn't mean you pray casually. Because even as you drive, to call upon the great God of creation is not a casual thing. You only utter his son's dear name and the gates of heaven swing open and you're ushered into his magnificent presence. The God of eternity for a moment in time stops to listen to you. How dare we take that lightly? How dare we stroll along with this, hi God, how are things in eternity mentality? We don't have to have the these and the thous to pray properly, but we never dare forget we're not talking to the man upstairs. We're talking to the one who framed the universe, who spoke the stars into the heavens, who released the oceans and said, go no farther, who knit us together in our mother's womb. We are approaching the throne of Jehovah God. How dare we stroll in? We should spiritually take off our shoes. We stand on holy ground. That's what it means. First of all, make prayers. It means approach God properly. Always, at all times, without ever forgetting He is God. That's what it means. The third word is in tuxis, and it's translated in most of our Bibles as the word intercession. But the first word we translated for you literally meant what we call intercession. This word means to fall in line with. It means to draw near to another for the purpose of intimacy in conversation. So it's the flip side of prayer. It means that once you enter the throne room with the realization of who God is in awesome respect, then you're in a position to speak to him not only as the creator God, but as your redeemer friend. It means you approach him with confidence once you have approached him with humility. Not because of who you are, because of what he's done. So praying with intercession really means, beloved, that you pray intimately, personally, and specifically. It isn't a liturgy of, of recited words. It is a pouring out of your heart the way David prayed, one-to-one -to, -one to the only one. The final word in Paul's quadripartite explanation of the phenomenon of prayer is even 
more familiar but perhaps less practiced than the other three. The Greek word is eucharistia. It means the act of expressing gratitude. It's translated thanksgiving in most of our Bibles, in almost all of the translations, and it's indicative of both attitude and expression, but the command here is to give thanks whether you feel like it or not. That's really what it is. You say, well, I've thought of that, but that's hypocritical to me. I only want to praise God and I only want to thank God when I feel thankful. But you're wrong. The key is that Christ lives in you. And Christ in you is always thankful. And that's what Paul meant when he said, In everything be constantly giving thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Literally, in Christ who lives in you. Christ in you is always thankful. The flesh in you never is, always wants more, and justifies it deserves at least what it got. But you have to exercise self-control at that point. Self-control, you remember, is the will and obedience to the word over the objections of the appetites and the emotions. You give thanks by choice. And you do it in advance. That's because if you've prayed properly, you've taken your request to God in an attitude of humility and left them there. And the choice of what to do is his. And the results for what are done are his. So the giving of thanks is not predicated on anything that has not yet happened. This may be the most important part of prayer. I believe Paul mentioned this in virtually every place in Scripture he uses to define prayer. And I believe the reason is it is virtually the only thing we do to practice for heaven. Trench said, here is that aspect of prayer that will continue through eternity. Thanksgiving. And yet this is the most least practice of most of our prayer lives. Giving thanks in advance for God's answers to our prayers, even though we have no idea how he will answer. Because he is, I am, however he answers is wonderful. So Paul is saying, always pray for all men, always, without ceasing, but do it right. Approach God with awesome respect. Draw near to him intimately. Speak to him specifically of the spiritual needs of others particularly those in authority over you. And wrap, wrap your requests in an anthem of thanksgiving, giving God the praise of your heart and giving you a preview of what heaven will be like. That's what Paul is saying. Live your life like that. And the problems that face the Ephesian church or your church or your life will all begin to come into proper focus. So Paul's told us at least four of the criteria for prayer. He's told us how to pray. Now in these closing moments, he's, we're going to look at what he said when he told us why to pray. He gave us two reasons why to pray, and then he answers the question of the ages, why am I here? We'll save that one for next week. But let's close today's lesson by listening to Paul tell Timothy why constantly, first of all, we must be praying. The answer found in verse 3. It reads like this, because this kind of praying is good and it pleases God. That's why we pray. That's why we pray all the time for everyone. I want to give you the meaning of those words. The, this kind of prayer is good. Kalos is the Greek word and pleases apodektos, God. And there are awesome implications in those two words. First of all, Paul said, pray always like this, using these four things always as guidelines because it is good. Now, in the scripture, in the Greek, there are two words used to define in our English Bibles as good. One is the word agathos, and it's literally the nature of God. 
the quality of the nature of God that's so worthy of admiration because of his righteousness. The scripture describes the nature of God that way. He, by essence of being, God is good. He's perfect holiness and perfect righteousness wrapped up in perfect mercy. God is good. So when you see God, you see that which is agathos, that which is intrinsically good. But the second word, the one used in this passage, kalos, is used to describe rather the beauty of God's goodness expressed. I think if we could liken it to the Hebrew word used in Genesis over and over, when God created, he spoke, it happened, he looked at it and he said, hey, that's good. God saw that it was good. That's really what this word means it would be likened to that word so when we pray the way Paul's teaching us to pray in this passage the results are kalos they are beautiful reflections of the goodness of God flowing back into his presence they are good secondly not only is it good it pleases God the Greek word apodektos is found in Romans 16:15. that's the passage where Paul's talking about the offering up of the Gentiles as a gift to God which is pleasing 2 Corinthians 6, 2, the acceptable time of salvation is now. And it literally means the time it will please God most, there's your word, for men to be saved is now. Now, if we're literally going to define the word, it is that which warms the heart of God. Or it is that key that unlocks the inner chambers of God's heart, would be a literal definition. So what Paul is saying here is if it's your goal to reflect the nature of God and if it's your goal to affect the heart of God, then pray. First of all, pray. Pray often, pray always for all men without ceasing, especially those God has placed over you. And then Paul has gone on and said, Beloved, pray like this. Enter his presence reverently. Speak to his heart respectfully. But talk with him intimately. Pray for others specifically, but focus those prayers spiritually. And be sure to pray thankfully, for you already know, even before he answers, that he will answer perfectly. You see, the issue isn't whether or not he does it your way, but whether or not you have set him free to do it his way. Because his way, remember, is good and acceptable and perfect. What you're doing in the process as you praise him in advance is saying thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you're preparing for heaven at the same time. I'm afraid so many of us live the Christian life. We spend so much time running around doing things trying to make God happy. We're so busy we don't have time to sit still and find out what he's trying to tell us will make him happy. He just told us. It expresses his nature beautifully. And it warms his heart personally when first of all, and last of all, and all in all, we pray. This is good, and it pleases God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you've given us an opportunity to come into the chambers of the king and have an audience. And Father, we're in awe that you have been so gracious to us in the light of our sinfulness. We're so in awe, Father, that your ear is always open to us. We're so in awe, Father, that you have so specifically told us how to approach your throne, who to pray for, how to pray for them, when to pray. 
Father, teach us as you taught the disciples how to pray. And as the days unfold before us, even these days to come in this week, may you quietly open our eyes and remove scales that may be there, Father, from disobedience. And allow us to see our prayer lists formed in the lives of those with whom we come in contact, beginning even today. Father, break our hearts to pray that we might make requests always for all men without ceasing, giving thanks in advance that you honor your word always. Make this a week of commitment to prayer in each of our lives. And as we lay ourselves and our requests at your feet, may you fill our hearts with thanksgiving and praise for whatever it is you choose to do. For thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, thine is the glory forever. Amen.